All right, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr and you're listening to episode 27 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. It's my podcast where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours, although you probably know that by now. Thanks as ever for listening to and or downloading the show and I hope you enjoy it. So I'm recording this intro from Sydney in Australia, Bondi Beach to be exact, which is uh, exactly where I'm sitting now, which is why you can probably hear um, waves in the background. Gotta say, it's pretty tiny. There's a couple of people out, but yeah, this is uh, the height of summer, definitely summer wave territory. I'm recording this also on the day that apparently it's dumped with snow in the UK. So I'm having a different Sunday and Monday to I imagine quite a few people listen to this, but yeah, it's all good. I'm here for a month, gonna do some surfing, swimming, going to do a, like a 5k swim in the harbour next weekend which I'm uh, very much looking forward to and I'm also going to take care of some podcast business so yeah keep an ear out for that. As for this episode well yeah I thought it was relevant and timely when I recorded it but recent events have meant this conversation with Patagonia Vice President of Public Engagement Rick Ridgway more relevant than ever as I hope will become clear as you have a listen. So before that who is Rick Ridgway? Well I've had a few legends on this show but Rick's CV might just top the lot. He's a climber, a mountaineer, an explorer, a sailor, an all-round titan of the outdoor adventure world who was part of the first American party to summit K2. Yep, just that. He was also part of the original Seven Summits expedition. He made the first coast-to-coast traverse of Borneo. Just a few achievements in a formidably impressive adventure in life. He's also a writer, a filmmaker, director, a producer. He sits on the board of the World Wildlife Fund, the Earth Day Network, the National Geographic Expedition Council. You get the point. Check the links in the show notes for a full breakdown of this remarkable career and prepare to feel quite lazy, to tell you the truth. And yet, as you'll notice, as you listen to this one, recorded at the Kendall Festival in uh, November 2017, we don't discuss any of that because Humble doesn't really cover it with Rick. What we ended up discussing is what he describes convincingly as the cliff out there on the horizon line, the environmental crisis we're currently in and what we as individuals and companies such as Patagonia can do about it. Now, why is this so relevant? Well, it's particularly relevant given events in the last few weeks when President Trump has threatened, hugely scaled back and reduced two national monuments in Utah, Bears Ears and Grand Escalante, I believe it's called, although forgive me if I've got that wrong. Now, even though we don't discuss this outright, because our chat took place a couple of weeks before those decisions were made. It's worth, it's worth a little background here to help contextualise the conversation and also contextualise Patagonia's pretty punchy campaign that they um, put in place against Trump as soon as that decision was announced. As Rick explains, this type of macro and micro environmental activism is really enshrined in Patagonia's DNA and it has been since the beginning. And Rick is very careful to contextualize Patagonia's activities in this light throughout our conversation. And as you you listen, you realize this is the reason that their actions, whether it's pulling out of the Utah Outdoor Retailer Show or as now calling out Trump, this is what gives those actions a real moral and cultural authority in our industry. And I really enjoyed hearing uh, Rick explain exactly how this type of activism has been woven carefully into Patagonia's business DNA. And also how this, in his own words, is what creates the, the value of the business and is why people respect and genuinely seem to love the brand so much. Now, in the interest of balance, I should probably say, Patagonia can be easy to mock. After all, Patagucci, I mean, we've all heard that. And they're a clothing company trading an environmental message, which is a fundamental contradiction, really, at the heart of environmentalism in our industry. After all, how can you espouse these values while simultaneously selling products and promoting activities that are fundamentally bad for the planet. Well, Rick, I would say a formidably articulate spokesperson makes this convincing case a case for positive activism as I've ever heard. And the truth is that their jealous safeguarding of value and purpose is what's led to the situation Patagonia is currently in, of being able to police their own growth in light of their own values And as I say, to lead from the front when it comes to some of the key environmental issues of our time. So yeah, it was a real pleasure this one. And as you'll hear, for most of the time, to be honest, I just sat back and enjoyed listening to a wonderful orator, really, and a great spokesperson in full flow. And I hope you do too. So here it is, my conversation with the great Rick Ridgway. Enjoy.
that down a little bit. Um, so you got in town yesterday. Yeah. Um, Ryan and I both arrived uh, yesterday midday after an overnight in Manchester. Quick visit to our store that we're building out there that will open in just a couple of weeks. Oh, okay. That's yeah. my uh, hometown, actually. Uh-huh. Oh, great. Yeah. And, and had you come in from, uh, from well, Ventura? Well, uh, we came in from Bonn, where uh, we were participating in the COP23 climate change conference. Okay. Uh, where there I spoke both at the American Pavilion, uh, which um, had to be outside of the uh, official central zone of the conference, because the United States has pulled back from the Paris Agreement. <coughs> Now the only country in the world uh, that's not say, a signatory. The only country left, right? The only one. Because I think Syria signed up, didn't they? They did. Like last week or something, didn't they? They did. Yeah, yeah leaving exactly. the States. Right. Uh, and as you may know, the, uh, the, 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 the country <clears throat> has opened this, its own pavilion uh, outside of the uh, official zone that represents uh, a cohort of uh, companies of which Patagonia is a signatory with uh, nearly 2,000 other companies uh, and just as significantly if not more so um, a half a dozen or more states in the United States and many uh, nonprofits representing different parts of American civil society and even some religious leaders joining together <clears throat> to collectively aggregate uh, their organizational um, and corporate, in the case of the companies, uh, greenhouse commitments and reductions. Okay. Uh, so that um, in aggregate, we can deliver together um, a sufficient reduction in greenhouse gas emissions to meet the Paris Accords uh, and just uh, collectively uh, give the middle finger to Trump. That's what we're up to. That seems to be a common theme right now. Yep. So is this kind of cross-organizational work, is that a large part of your role? Yes, my current title at Patagonia is Vice President of Public Engagement. Uh, that's a, uh, an ambiguous title that uh, I define as engaging and you know, anybody that uh, the company wants to talk to or try to influence or partner with uh, in many myriad ways. Uh, and that includes not just our customers, but um, it includes... Uh, often nonprofits that we work with, uh, typically environmental not-for-profits, uh, but it also includes uh, uh, other companies uh, frequently, uh, as well as occasionally other governments. So I engage with all those different sectors. Uh, again, just like we were at COP23 in that American v- pavilion, you know, t- trying to do our part to uh, avoid uh, the uh, cliff out there on the horizon line if we all don't collaborate collectively to do something about this uh, crisis that we're facing. So what other projects are you, are you involved with right now? Well, there's a, a myriad of projects that I'm involved with uh, through the company. Um, the company is, uh, and I'll answer your question uh, perhaps in a lar- by, if you, with your permission, a, a larger context of explaining uh, you know, the really uh, 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 unusual attributes of this company, Patagonia. We are obviously in the business of making, you know, outdoor gear, but less obvious, we're really in the business of using the business as a tool for environmental protection. And, and, and that's why we exist. Um, it perhaps wasn't always that way in the very beginning when uh, Yvonne Chouinard founded the company in the early 19. 19- 70s, uh, but it soon evolved into uh, that commitment. You know, it goes back to uh, Yvonne's really early experiences in business when uh, even before Patagonia existed and the company made climbing hardware for, for, for climbers, uh, including pitons, uh, and the discovery, um, n- not necessarily epiphanally, but over time, that the placement of those pitons and their withdrawal with each group's passage was especially on the popular routes in places like Yosemite, creating permanent damage to the rock. Um, you know, you hammer in those pegs and take them out each time, and, uh, and every time that hole gets incrementally bigger. So those micro-environmental consequences were in the DNA from the yeah, start. Yeah, in the DNA. So, you know, Yvonne 
work to develop uh, chocks and uh, stoppers and hexes, as they were called back in those days. Um, and that was a bit of a business risk in that because the majority of the company's revenue was from pitons. And here he was developing a technology which was going to displace the single biggest revenue stream for the company. But he, he had an intuitive feel that it wasn't really a business risk. <laughs> yeah. In fact, he didn't know it for sure, but he just in his gut had that feeling that, you know, what today you would call more opportunity than risk from a business perspective. And it was true. So that quickly the, um, the clean climbing uh, uh, products, as they were called, um, replaced the pitons and the business grew as more people got into the sport uh, using a superior technology that was superior be principally because it was less damaging to the rock. And that was cool. That was such a fundamental lesson uh, for Yvonne and the company that, you know, you could do good by the environment and do good by your business. And, and I think every decision that Yvonne and the companies had to make since then that involved a trade-off of what might have seemed like a trade-off between environmental protection and business return uh, and success has always worked out for the better for the business and for the planet. Like, they, they don't exclude each other. Well, in addition to that fundamental experience in the early years of the company, there was another one that was equally profound that was nearly concurrent in the early 70s when the city council in Ventura, where the company's located in the California coast, north of Los Angeles, just a little ways, had approved the development of a uh, hotel uh, along uh, the beach, just two blocks from the company's headquarters, that had been located there for the important business reason that it was just two block walk to a good surf break. <laughs> and this development was gonna build a seawall and take out the surf break. Right. And Yvonne and the other guys in the, and pals in the business then just assumed it was a done deal. Right. But nevertheless went to the city council meeting uh, to voice their protest, not having any confidence anybody would listen to them. And they really didn't until a young man got up who Yvonne had never met before, who was a university graduate student in biology, and gave this slideshow with old school slides of all the life and magic that existed in the river mouth that was also going to be destroyed, and along the beach and in the ocean uh, and upstream. Went through the whole thing so compellingly that it brought the house down, turned the city council around, defeated the development, and the surf break's still there. We all at lunchtime and other times when the waves are good, Still that's what surfing. we do. We go down and go surfing. And Yvonne realized that you could really affect change if you supported those individuals and activists who were out on the front lines really driving that change more than any other element of society. And he's put some deep thought into it. Uh, and other people in the company, you know, they had to kind of, for a bunch of dirtbag climbers, become you know, quasi-amateur historians. And finally came to the conclusion that when you look through history, especially the history of our own country in the United States where the company uh, grew up, that any meaningful societal change, uh, including all the change to protect the environment, has come not from the government, but by the activists that have pressured or incentivized or in some way you know, persuaded the government to, to make the changes. Going all the way back to the rebels who threw the tea boxes into the Boston Harbor and got the whole thing started in the first place. So that is where the company's commitment to activists and activism started, and it's never waned, and it's only strengthened over time, until finally, now, as I said a minute ago, the company is truly in business to be an agent and a tool for environmental protection, and the main strategy for that is supporting activists and activism. So I spend a lot of my time uh, supporting that part of the company's business. I, you know, I go around uh, like I am here at the Kendall Film Festival, um, explaining the company's history, explaining what those commitments are, trying to um, influence uh, people to uh, think of themselves as, as activists. That's one of the company's missions, and that's one of my responsibilities with the company today. And uh, I must say that it's less responsibility than it is privilege. Uh, when you work for a company that's as close to a not-for-profit as a for-profit company can possibly, probably, likely ever be, um, you come to work in the morning 
um, you know, rolling up your sleeves uh, with a grin on your face going, oh, today I get to add a little bit more and do my part. So how do you choose the projects that you support? Where, where, do they, where do those ideas come from? Well, I just went through a bit of an explanation of the history of the company's commitment to uh, environmental protection and, and, and activism. And by the early 90s, uh, it was able to articulate that commitment into a mission statement uh, that's complex, but the challenges are very complex. Uh, and it's a mission statement uh, that still guides the companies today. And it starts with the company's commitment to making the best, highest quality most durable product it can. And that is an environmental act. Because when you make a durable product, when you design it so it can be repaired, when you make it uh, with a design that's as timeless as possible, maybe it's not in style, you know, in style but it's not going to go out of style right away, and you try to work towards all those ends, you get a product that people can keep and use for 5, 10, 15 years. You know, here at the Kindle Film Festival, um, our booth is a repair station where people bring Patagonia products into us as they do in similar setups around the world where we, where we have this program called Warnware. And we see those products firsthand and we hear the stories. Oh, I've had this jacket for 20 years. This is like my friend, you know, it's, it, it knows all my stories. And we hear those stories and we celebrate them and we help our customers keep those products in repair and in use so they don't have to buy new stuff. So durability is really probably the most important component of any product's footprint on the planet. Because when you have a jacket that you've been using for five years and 10 years and 15 years, uh, its footprint on the planet over its lifetime decreases exponentially. So that's Mission number one, make the best product. Mission number two is make that best product causing no unnecessary harm. No unnecessary harm to the planet, to the planet's societies, uh, also to uh, the animals when they're used uh, in the creation of the product, like uh, sheep for uh, wool, for example, um, or goats for cashmere. <clears throat> now, that's a very interesting commitment and component of our mission as well, because uh, first, uh, it's grammatically incorrect. Uh, cause no unnecessary harm is a double negative. And when you remove the two negatives to make it grammatically correct, what are you left with? The fact and recognition that you are causing harm. And that's our definition of sustainability, that the manufacturing creation of consumer goods, uh, no matter how much we or anybody like us strives to reduce the footprint of those products, it's still causing harm. And that's where that idea of durability comes back in. See how it's all interconnected. Um, if you recognize that no matter how hard you try to reduce the footprint of a product and it still has a footprint, then the footprint can be further reduced if it's durable. So it's kind of intermixed like that. Now, when we optimize those two commitments, making the most durable, best product we can, making that product causing no unnecessary harm, it does create business value. The business really succeeds uh, with that model. And then the third part of our mission is to use that success of our business to, quote, implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Now, we use that word crisis with great purpose and focus because it is a crisis. And that is another fundamental recognition that this company has made, uh, that I and others in the company try to communicate, uh, to articulate, uh, that when we go to conferences and we listen to all these other businesses, especially the, the global multinationals, um, discuss uh, all the sustainability initiatives that they have underway, and more often than not, crow about them and even brag. Uh, or even if they're doing that and they're not doing that because they are perhaps by corporate culture more self-effacing, but nevertheless feeling like they're doing their part, we remind them that maybe whatever their part they're doing is not nearly enough. We remind them that at Patagonia, the key performance indicators, what business geeks call KPIs, uh, in our case, are not necessarily the year-over-year -year sales comparables, <laughs> the kind of typical numbers that companies typically use to try to measure the health of their businesses. For us, we measure the health of our business by the health of the planet. And when you do that and you look at the KPIs for planet Earth, 
they're tanking. If you look at greenhouse gas emissions, leveled off for the last four or five years, what's happened now? They're going back up again. The planet's temperature, we all know what's happening to that. The planet's sea level, we all know what's happening to that. Most worrisome or more worrisome, the acidification of the sea. We all know where that's going. The continued uh, desertification uh, of so much of the Earth's terrestrial surface. The continued deforestation of what's left of our forests. The, and, and, and here, perhaps the most alarming one of all, the continued uh, increasingly rapid extinction of biodiversity on planet Earth. Uh, a thousand to ten thousand times above its background rate. When you look at those indicators of the health of our planet, and you ask yourself, what really supports our business? Can we have a healthy business if we don't have a healthy planet to give us a healthy stream of resources to support our businesses? If we don't have a healthy planet to support healthy societies, to give our businesses healthy markets? Can we really conclude that we're doing enough to protect this one and only home planet of ours? Or do we need to recognize that we're not even coming close? Do we need to recognize that all of us have to roll up our sleeves and really get serious about this crisis? And that is why we use that word environmental crisis, because that's exactly what we're in. And uh, we think it's a toss-up, whether we're going to go over the cliff or avoid it. Can you, are, you, are you an optimist about the future, given the fairly dire scenario that you've just painted, and given the work that you're doing, the perspective that you have? How, how do you feel about the future? You know, I am personally an optimist, um, and I'm probably an optimist by, um, by character, uh, perhaps by some sort of um, alignment of my own DNA. And uh, Yvonne, my dear friend of nearly 50 years now, my climbing partner who founded this company, uh, is much more of a pessimist. Uh, and I suspect that's probably part of his DNA alignment, but whether that's true or not, um, I do see the glass a little more half full than, than he does. Although <clears throat> um, I recognize and respect deeply the, um, the, the, the reasons uh, for his own pessimism and the reasons for kind of his uh, darkness o over it all. But having said that, um, you know, Yvonne loves a good glass of red wine. He loves to go fly fishing. Uh, he loves to surf. Uh, he's a, a little past his climbing days now, but we had a together even over four decades of that. And there was a lot of joy in our lives and there still is. So we must describe his pessimism in that context, that he's a joyful person. But as a friend of mine, David Quammen said, <clears throat> uh, the environmental writer, pointed out significantly, I think, that the trouble with despair as a response is that not only is it useless, it's also no fun. <laughs> so for whatever reason, <laughs> a little maybe, maybe. Pick which reason you want of what the ones I just listed. I am a little bit more of, a, of an optimist than Yvonne is. But you know, there's an interesting thing happening right now. And um, uh, allow me perhaps a, a, a little, what might seem like a digression uh, into another topic Please. that I'll come back to because it's very much related to your question about whether I'm an optimist or a pessimist or uh, if I'm more optimistic than Yvonne is pessimistic, you know, how do I... Uh, tee that one up and square it. Because there's something happening right now that is potentially super significant. And um, let me back up with uh, this description I'm going to give you in just a minute of a new development that has us more excited at Patagonia than maybe even anything else the company's run into in the last nearly 50 years it's been in existence. And here's the context for what I'm about to tell you about. The, the company is starting to get very excited about a development it's just learning about and, and, and becoming uh, an increasingly becoming expert in. I'll tell you about this in just a second. But first, I want to preface it by explaining the context, <clears throat> uh, the larger context for where this fits in, uh, potentially in the suite 
of what we consider uh, all the actions are that are going to be necessary to solve climate change, to really avoid that cliff. Um, you know, climate change is not really the problem. Climate change is a symptom of the problem. And the real problem is continued annual affluence and growth uh, consumption uh, by all of us human beings. Uh, it is our continued accelerated human activity on the planet combined with a growing population of human beings on the planet that is the problem. And the symptom of that problem is climate change. But climate change is a great proxy for the whole thing. So solve climate change and you're gonna solve everything else. Now, we at Patagonia are thinking about how all the solutions to climate change fit into three categories. And the first one is this category of all the work going on now to reduce the uh, emissions uh, from the collective activities of human beings on the planet. <clears throat> and perhaps the biggest effort underway right now is the scaling of renewable energy, for example. Uh, we would add, in our view, that without also a scaled reduction in consumption, especially of stuff, but also services, that renewable energy alone is not going to get us there either. But we put those things together in this first category. The second category <clears throat> is the need for we human beings to continue to scale the protection on the planet of the, remain, of the planet's remaining forests and grasslands and wetlands, and to begin the work of restoring forests and wetlands and grasslands that have been degraded so that they can, by regaining their health, also amplify their ability to sequester carbon, to pull it out of the air and put it back into the trees, put it back into the roots, put it back into the soil. And the potential for protected forests and grasslands and wetlands to do that is enormous. It's more than the potential for scaled renewable energy when you actually measure it out. Okay. Now, Patagonia, since its founding, has been in the business of protecting those places. We, through our philanthropy, uh, support NGOs around the world doing that. We've been doing that work since the beginning, and now we're starting to understand more from a, a more informed scientific perspective, how that work is a very important partial solution to climate change. More important than all the work we're doing, like so many other companies, to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions through our entire supply chain, for example. So those are the first two categories, reduce emissions, scale protected areas. We're fully behind uh, E.O. Wilson and uh, his friend's effort to actually scale up protected areas until they represent half of the planet. Because science, uh, when the science of sequestration is starting to realize that we need half the planet protected to avoid the cliff, the climate change cliff. Now, here's the third category. This is the one that I was getting around to, uh, the one that I wanted to first describe this context. <clears throat> and that category is new ways of farming and, and raising animals uh, on the farmlands and the grazing lands that exist right now on planet Earth. <laughs> Popular aim. <laughs> the third category is developing new ways of farming and grazing, of growing food and raising animals uh, for uh, food to support we human beings. Now, there are, at the moment, farmers and ranchers developing new ways of going about food production that increase the health of the soil on farms and on ranches uh, in grazing lands. Now that may not seem too significant, but as we've gone deeper into this topic, we at Patagonia are discovering that it is extremely significant, extremely potentially significant to the extent that, listen to this, we are concluding, along with many leading scientists beginning to look into this, that this category of solutions to climate change potentially exceeds all the other ones, even all the other ones put together. That this one alone 
could potentially save us from going over the cliff. A remarkable discovery on our part. <clears throat> there are farms in the United States, here in the UK, um, in the continent, uh, in South America, <clears throat> in Australia, um, just a handful of them, uh, perhaps collectively a few hundred around the world, who have been developing new farming protocols that uh, do four different things in general. First, they never plow the soil. In fact, that is consistent across every place on earth that's experimenting with these new ways of farming. You never plow. Instead, you use seed drills to plant the seeds. Then, in addition, you use cover cropping, especially in the fallow months uh, of the um, farm. And then uh, those cover croppings uh, both protect the soil from drying out and they provide nutrients to, um, uh, to uh, strengthen the health of the soil. Then the commercial crops that are raised on the farm are rotated optimally. And then fourthly, uh, composting is used to uh, add nutrients back into the soil. And, um, <clears throat> and pesticides and insecticides are either eliminated or used very sparingly. Uh, it's our position at Patagonia that all of this should be built on top of completely organic farming and grazing practices. Now what happens when you do these things for a few years? Well, first, the water becomes a sponge. <clears throat> As the health of the soil increases, the amount of organic matter dead and alive in the soil increases, and that soil begins to retain water. And it begins to retain enormous amounts of water. So when it rains, the water all goes into the ground and it doesn't run off. And then when it's not raining and it's dried out or when there's a drought, the soil gives back the water and those farms need less and sometimes no additional irrigation water compared to the farms next door that are using traditional industrial-based practices. Now here's the second thing that happens. The significant, well, it's all significant, but the thing that's got us excited. <laughs> My long-winded answer to maybe we can be optimists now, even Yvonne. It is that the soil, because it is getting more healthy, and because that health is measured by the amount of organic matter in the soil, whether it's dead or alive, that means the soil is beginning to increase its carbon content. That means the soil, as its health is growing, is taking carbon out of the air and bringing it and storing it back into the soil where it used to be, where it used to be before the industrial and the agricultural revolutions uh, of we human beings. Um, and so there's enough of these farms around the world now um, that have been up and running long enough that are actually measuring on a molecule basis the amount of carbon going back into the soil that soil scientists developing and working with the farmers on these ideas are able to extrapolate what's going to happen if this idea scales. And if it scales, if it scales enough to be approximately half converting to approximately half of the farming and grazing on planet Earth, that's going to pull so much carbon out of the air, it could return us to atmospheric carbon levels before the Industrial Revolution started, just around the corner here in England. So it could recalibrate the damage that we've done, essentially. Now, you ask, I'm sorry for this long-winded answer, but, but I would ask all, you, all your listeners to really stop and think about this. It's called regenerative farming and grazing. To think about how we at Patagonia are categorizing the, uh, the, all the solutions for climate change, and we're understanding our own company's commitment to this. And we want to ask all your listeners to think about their personal commitments, whether through their organizations, their own personal lives. And because, because there is now room for optimism that is based on science that is super real. So at Patagonia, we're working now on developing regenerative farming protocols for cotton so that when you go into a store to buy one of our t-shirts, you're not buying a t-shirt that's causing no unnecessary harm. You're buying a t-shirt that's doing more good instead of less bad. That it has a handprint instead of a footprint. That when you look on the inside of our t-shirt, maybe in the future you'll be able to read how many pounds of carbon that t-shirt has pulled out of the air and put back into the ground. And you can wear that t-shirt knowing that you're also wearing a solution to climate change. This was actually one of the, this leads me nicely to one of the, the main questions that I think people were interested in when they, when they learned I was going to be speaking to you, which is 
how can these individual micro choices, how, how can people make a difference on that level? For example, with um, the sports that we all love, which, in, which involves often travel, how do you square those contradictions? We at Patagonia, just about like most of us, uh, most of we human beings on this planet are a bundle of inconsistencies and contradictions. And certainly my own personal travel represents those contradictions, as does Yvonne's. You know, he says, uh, when it's uh, my turn's over, uh, there's a much better chance I'm going to hell than to heaven, uh, just based on my airline carbon footprint. Yeah, sure. Uh, but then we try to rationalize that um, by, uh, by convincing ourselves that uh, traveling around the world and talking to people like you and sharing these ideas and trying to get others to follow offsets, you know, those emissions. And I, I hope they do. But again, that's a rationalization. I, I haven't, I don't know anybody's actually taken the time to figure out if you could even figure out whether you're doing more harm than good going around talking to people and trying to get them to, to think and, and act differently. So I admit the inconsistencies and that's the, that's the, the, res, the rationalization that the least I've developed and, and our company has as well to answer that part of your question. But you also asked, you know, what anyone can do as an, in, as an individual and, <clears throat> I would uh, say that the best answer to that is one that I heard Yvonne give in an interview where he said, figure out what you're good at and use what you're good at as a tool to advance even a little bit environmental protection. And if you're a good writer, write. And if you're a good speaker, speak. And if you've got extra time, you know, volunteer. Uh, and certainly all of us can, as, with our roles as consumers, align with companies that, you know, like ours, are really making an effort to um, reduce the footprint of their uh, products or uh, their services in, in that case. So there's all these things that, that, that we can do. And, um, and, and perhaps just as equally important, uh, we can all be missionaries. We can all proselytize, if you will, um, the environmental crisis and try to get more people to realize the dilemma that we human beings are in and to join all together in trying to collectively find uh, solutions. Because as I said a minute ago, I think now, uh, just recently, there are solutions that are emerging that collectively could really save the day. You've mentioned your relationship with uh, Yvonne a few times. So what, when did you guys first meet? You said, I think you said 50 years ago. Well, it hasn't been that long, but it feels like it. <laughs> but it goes back to the uh, very beginning of the 70s. So, you know, that's getting close to 50 years, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and certainly my gray hair and my, uh, you know, like Chris Bonington in his presentation here at Kindle last night said, my increasingly creaky joints and bones <laughs> are telling me that um, I'm going one direction and not the other. But... Uh, Yvonne and I uh, met in the very beginning of the 70s, before Patagonia was a company, when he was making uh, hardware for climbers. Uh, and we uh, started be climbing together, uh, and we also started surfing together. I lived in the same area of Southern California as he did. Uh, and uh, over the years, I was back then uh, a photographer and filmmaker and a writer. Uh, but I also was a consultant in the outdoor uh, equipment business. And so I began doing work for uh, Yvonne as a, as a contractor, uh, marketing work, uh, helping create some of the early catalogs and marketing pieces, but also joining him, even though this was not my expertise, in product development, going out uh, into the mountains to test ice axes, for example, uh, and offering my feedback, which he quickly realized was anything but expertise. But I could offer value in these other areas, and, and I did. And then uh, I married uh, in the early 80s, and my wife uh, became real close friends with uh, Yvonne and the company's founding CEO, uh, Chris McDivitt, now Chris Tompkins. Um, and we became, in a sense, kind of a, an extended family. She worked at the company for over 20 years. Uh, founded the marketing department, and with Yvonne developed what is now the, the current and modern Patagonia catalog, which was a significant development uh, in the history of advertising. It, it really was a, a milestone in advertising in its ability to uh, represent the company through 
its core customers in a way that was just super authentic. It redefined authenticity uh, in uh, marketing uh, and in b brand building. Um, so she was integral in that development at Patagonia and, and the company's leadership in that part uh, of, it, of, the, of the business world. Um, then uh, our uh, children, uh, my wife and my three kids, uh, Ivana and Melinda's uh, two kids, they grew up together. <clears throat> They're each other's best friends. Uh, Yvonne's kids work at the company, and our two older daughters work at the company, uh, where our oldest daughter makes videos for the company, and our middle daughter is the photography editor. And our older daughter was uh, child number one at the Patagonia's uh, on-site daycare center. Wow, uh, right, okay. And now her daughter uh, and her son are in the daycare center, and I drive those little kids to work with me every day. So we're a three-generation Patagonia family, <clears throat> and we are an integrated with the Chenard family and integrated with so many other families in the company. And, and the lines are totally blurred. And what is blurred is the, lives, the lines between our professional lives and our, and our uh, non-work uh, you know, uh, life uh, so, that, so that it's blended in a way that is not you know, weird or um, you know, perhaps alarming in any way, but just the opposite. Uh, and it's because all our values are, are aligned, and it's because the company has the back of every employee that's there in a deep, deep way that I've never, ever seen at another company. Has that been difficult to protect as the company's grown, that culture that's obviously such an integral part of Patagonia? Well, the protecting of Patagonia's core values and its culture as it's grown is a paramount concern. Uh, and it, in fact is a, another thing that really distinguishes this company from anything else I've ever run into, and it is that the company is totally paranoid about growth. Now, okay, that's interesting. I've never run into another company where you can honestly say that. But when, is it too loud out there? No, it's fine, it's okay. fine, yeah. But the company is totally paranoid about growth. I, I've never run into another company. <laughs> We need a sign on the door. I yeah, think. yeah. I think, uh, they know, I think they know you're in it, Eric. <laughs> the, the company is paranoid about growth. Uh, I've never run into another company where, you know, with honesty, I can, I can say that. But when the company starts to grow, and, and it has over its years, other than just one section in the mid-90s when it was flat and declined a little bit, the only time it's ever been in any kind of financial difficulties, it has grown rather consistently, and it's still is but when the growth gets up into the double digits uh, and even into the you know uh, ab above just the teens of, of growth the alarm bells go off at Patagonia uh, and the reason is that the company takes such care to protect its core values and the biggest threat to those values is is perceived as as growth so you know how do we do that how do we keep our core values that was your question um, while we grow. And uh, we do that in a few ways that are, that are, I think, very interesting, especially for anybody listening in who perhaps is in business. Uh, and the most uh, uh, single biggest uh, thing that we do to protect our values is protect our distribution, that we guard our distribution with such great care, that we distribute to wholesale accounts who in the main share our values and can communicate our values. That when we sell through our own channels, our own stores that we own, uh, the internet uh, sales, for example, that we take every opportunity to communicate to our customers what those core values are. And that we avoid going into broader channels of distribution that would accompany any decrease in that ability to maintain our uh, values and tell our story. And we just don't do that. And that limits our growth. But that's okay. We actually are more comfortable when we limit it. If we took our foot off the brake, the place would go off like a Cape Canaveral rocket because there's so much demand that we've created through our commitment to these values, through our commitment to the values instead of the commitment to sales. Uh, and it's a really interesting, what seems like a paradox, which actually creates this enormous business value. Now, the second thing we've done to protect our values, I think is equally, if not more interesting, and that is we've become the first 
B Corporation to charter in the state of California. And as some of your listeners may know, uh, B, the B Corp movement is a movement of companies that are committed to what's in business called shared value. They're committed to creating value, not just for shareholders, but for stakeholders, for communities, for civil society, um, for uh, human beings touched by their businesses outside of the ones that may profit directly from that business. That's what a B Corp is. And it's required to, to both measure its commitment to that shared value, to reach a threshold of commitment, to reach a threshold of commitment, and then if it is chartered in a province or a state or a country that has officially recognized the B Corp movement, uh, in a government that allows it to then recharter itself around its core values, it's required to do that. The state of California, where we're chartered as a company, has recognized officially B Corps. <clears throat> and as the first B Corp in the state of California, we were the first ones to recharter our company, to actually rewrite our articles of incorporation around our core values. So the number one obligation now of Patagonia's charter is to build the best product, causing no unnecessary harm. It is to cause no unnecessary harm to its employees, to the planet societies, to uh, animals. Uh, it is to forevermore give away 1% of its sales, not its profits, but its sales, to environmental nonprofits. Um, it is committed forevermore to supporting its employees through things like its on-site child development center. And those things are spelled out, Enshrined. even in some detail, in the way the company's chartered. And that charter can only be changed by a 100% unanimous vote of the board of directors. So now our core values are chartered into the company um, as firmly chiseled into stone as any existing law allows us to do against any unforeseen secession event that may happen out on the horizon line when Yvonne's dead and Melinda's gone, their kids may be running the company, maybe not. Looks like right now they will be. Right now they are more committed than their parents to these core values, so it's looking good for a while. But what would it look like 50 and 100 years out? No one can see that far. <clears throat> so this is the best we can do right now. This is an inbuilt protection for the future. The best we can do to... Um, uh, build that resilience, uh, that protection of our core values uh, in, into the company's uh, warp and weft, if you will, against any seen or unforeseen uh, future events. Um, the other thing that people were very interested is obviously your career as, a, as an adventurer and an explorer. Um, when you look back over that, those achievements, does, does anything in particular stand out that you're particularly proud of? Or Well, I have, like, you know like Yvonne and many people in the company, been a lifelong uh, mountaineer and climber and uh, also an avid surfer. Um, I'm not much of a skier, but I sure enjoy doing it. Uh, and I've, you know, I've made my own achievements uh, and I don't even, you know, need to go into those with any, with any detail um, because that's what not, you know, not what's significant. Um, I long ago, you know, uh, recognized the wisdom of uh, the great French alpinist uh, Lionel Touré, whose autobiography is titled Conquistadores of the Useless. <laughs> <laughs> but what isn't useless in mountaineering and rock climbing, what isn't useless in any time you spend uh, in wilderness and in wildness pursuing sports is the influence on your core values that can come from that exposure to nature and wildness. That exposure to uh, wildness uh, through these sports in ways that, that forces you to realize uh, your own limited time on the planet, that forces you to realize your own mortality, that if you really listen carefully, uh, will make you a more humble person. And, and those kinds of things that our sports can um, give back to us. To me, those are the, m more, the most important benefits that any of us can get from our commitment and love for, for outdoor sports, so much more than any tick list of the routes and climbs and summit that we've pulled off. Now, something else has happened along the way in my own personal story uh, as a climber uh, and a 
you know, a sailor. I've been a, a, an avid sailor most of my life. But, but all this time out in the wild parts of the world, in the oceans and, uh, and on land, uh, where I've been privileged to over my lifetime, you know, be in places that are truly wild. I've also, in my own lifetime, been able to witness firsthand, personally, the degradation and decline of the health of those places. You know, when Yvonne made the third ascent of Fitzroy back in the late 60s with Doug Tompkins, the approach to Fitzroy was total wilderness. There were no people there. There were a couple of gauchos with a few sheep. It was wild beach forests and grasslands that today are the, the city of Shalten that uh, climbers know well, that they probably enjoy having there, you know, to go down and, and hang in and get on the internet cafe and, and log in and see what the weather is coming in. And we recognize all that, but, but what us old geezers know <laughs> is where it all started from. And we also know firsthand the forests that have been cut down over the decades. We've seen those grasslands turn into deserts. And, and most alarmingly of all, with our own eyes, we've seen the glaciers retreat and we've seen the ice disappear. And in human time, we've seen the geological time of climate change happen right in front of us uh, as the planet's warming. And when you see those kinds of things happen and you become increasingly aware of it, well, we think that we're all morally obligated to do something about it. And since we're in business, we're going to use our business to be an agent for change. That is where the commitment really comes from in the first place. It comes from spending time as climbers, you know, as backcountry skiers, as surfers, out there in the wilds of the world with two open eyes, aware of change that's going on right now and making a commitment to doing something about it. And to anybody listening in right now who's a climber or any sort of outdoor athlete, I would ask you, so ask you please to pause and think about your own commitment and to go out there into the mountains or the wilderness with your eyes open so you really recognize what's happening. Are there any um, brands that you think are operating in a similar realm to Patagonia right now? Any brands that you look at and that you, you're particularly impressed by? Um, well, in outdoor sports, um, as I said, for decades now, Patagonia has been committed to giving away 1% of its sales back to environmental NGOs. And uh, you know, over the years, that's now totaled north of $100 million. And uh, I don't even see uh, all the companies I can think of over their lifetimes who have committed to outdoor sports protection or environmental protection uh, that it, together have given more than $100 million. Maybe they have. I haven't exactly added the numbers, but my back of the envelope calculations suggest not. And that is a shame. I mean, I, what are they thinking of? You know, how can they not step up their commitments? And there may be a, a few out there, and I know there are especially startups out there that are doing just that. Yeah. You know, Patagonia has an investment fund now called Tin Shed Adventures that... You know, we've got um, nearly $100 million in a fund that supports startups uh, of companies that have a model like ours, that are in business to be agents for change instead of, you know, um, organizations to make a few people uh, join the 1% club. And there are a growing number of them out there, uh, as there are a growing number of um, outdoor uh, sports enthusiasts who want to go into business. And we really, really encourage and even support them directly with funding to go into business, founding that business on the core values uh, of environmental protection like we have. And, and also, as I said, uh, concurrent protection to the health of societies and, and animals. So I see that happening and, and I get more excited about that. Uh, sometimes I get to go around talking to um, companies that are committed to becoming B Corps, as I explained earlier. And there, universally, I get to see dozens and hundreds of young people who are just on fire to make a change, who are on fire to use their lives um, to make the world a better place, who aren't out there just to create some kind of meaningless personal wealth. And, and that's so inspiring to see that. And, and it's, if I had to answer a question of whether it's trending upward or downward, it sure seems to me like it's going in the right direction. So my, uh, my final question for you, Rick, um, 
what does the future hold for Patagonia? Well, to answer your question about you know where the company's going, let me start by just saying where it's at. <clears throat> because I've been there, as I told you earlier, since the beginning. You know, is hanging out with Yvonne uh, back before the company even existed, going out testing the tools. I, I've been there either closely working as a contract employee or now for the last 12 or 13 years as an employee with my first job. I've never worked for anybody else before. When they made the job offer, my wife said, you know, why don't you try this work thing for a while? <laughs> anyway, where we're at now with that viewpoint I've had uh, being you know, really close to the center since the beginning, I can really say with what I feel is accuracy that the company has never been more committed to its mission than it is now. That it has never been more on fire than it is now. That it has never been as a business even healthier than it is now. And it has never been as committed to being a tool to support environmental activists and activism as it is now, without doubt. The company's there to take more and more risks, and it doesn't really give a shit anymore about what anybody else is doing, whether they're following or leading or whatever. We're in there, and we're going deeper, and we're going with more passion than we've ever had before. And we've got all these young people who are just as on fire inside the company now. And it is, it is just a radical kind of cauldron of young energy uh, that makes me optimistic. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to, uh, to talk to you. Oh, pleasure as well. Thank you, Matt. So there you go. That was my conversation with Patagonia's Rick Ridgway. And I hope you enjoyed it. I thought there was a lot of uh, really great, interesting, weighty stuff to get your teeth stuck into there. And I'd really like to hear what everyone thought about that one. So head on over to my Facebook or Instagram pages, leave me some comments and, uh, and let, let me know. This is one of those conversations where I turned up with a huge list of questions, to be honest. I did a lot of research because I was really conscious of the fact that getting an hour of Rick's time was uh, quite a privilege. And on that note, I do need to say thank you to Chloe Longstaff and Alex Weller for really going out of their way to help me get this one off the ground. And some of the questions I had, you know, they were notably about Rick's adventuring achievements, his relationship with Yvonne and Doug Tompkins. But in the end, the conversation flowed as it did and it felt a little bit trivial, to be honest, to try and turn it around to those topics. You could probably hear that when I tried to prompt Rick into talking about his own adventuring career. And I did really love his response and perspective on that. I mean, what was the quote? How exposure to nature, if, you, uh, if you're careful and you, you're observing, forces you to realize your own mortality and how if you listen carefully, it'll make you a more humble person, something which Rick describes as the most important benefit any of us get from our commitment to and love for outdoor sports. That's a message I can definitely get behind. Um, and if you've been with me from the start, then like me, you'll probably be beginning to discern quite a few themes that are cropping up again and again in my conversations with some of these action sports and adventure travel luminaries. I found there was much in this conversation that helped to contextualise my chats with Fergal Smith and Hugo Tagholm, for example. Each of these three, and there are many more that I've spoken to, are people who are using their own experience to try and solve some of the biggest problems of our age. But the one thing they've got in common, above all else, is that they've taken action and that they're encouraging each of us to take individual action that suits us so we can help contribute to the change that is ultimately going to be necessary. Thought-provoking stuff, I'm sure you'll agree, and I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. So there you go, another episode down and we're rapidly approaching episode 30, which is pretty hard to believe. And it's probably a good time once again to ask everybody, A, to leave me a review on iTunes, only five star one, ones please, I think I'm up to about 88 five star reviews on iTunes now, which is uh, amazing. Also the social shares, gotta be honest, pretty lacklustre response to uh, my plea for more social shares the other week but you know a few people chipped in so that's much appreciated if you still know that you should be sharing it and you're uh, it's at the bottom of the to-do list then please shift it up there and help me get more listeners you know the drill it's going to mean I can keep doing more of them and uh, a lot of people seem to to want me to keep doing this so yeah that's a pretty easy free and painless way of helping me to uh, achieve that goal but yeah 
I think it'd be great also to hear who you think I should be speaking to for the next 30 episodes. I'm heading into my first proper winter of doing the show, which means I've got a busy one lined up with usual travels. And yeah, I've got some really amazing guests lined up. I've also got a couple of beauties lined up for this trip, this Aussie mission. But if you can think of any others, I'm primarily based in Sydney. Um, then I'd love to hear them. So you know what to do, head to the website, www.wearelookingsideways.com, find my social tags and handles, hit me up, tag in some guests. I think I might start a thread on Instagram so we can all do that. And yeah, let me know what you want to hear. So that's it for this time. I am going to probably go for a surf, I reckon, get on a long board. And, uh, and yeah, enjoy the rest of this beautiful day. So thanks for listening. Until next time, catch you later. Goodbye.